This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Ever take a trip back to your hometown? Yeah, that's a great experience for me when I get an opportunity to go back to northwest Kansas to a little town called Moreland, Kansas. Moreland is known for several things. It has a skyscraper, a very large skyscraper. In fact, if you're on the top of that structure, you can see for almost 12 miles. Although they don't call it a skyscraper, it's called a grain elevator. All right? Uh, you know, you're in the country when is kind of the story of where I grew up. You know, the, the street is so wide that people park in the middle of the street. I mean, that just was understood. Uh, you park on the sides, and then all the farmers come to town after they've fed cows and done chores. They're all coming to the city to have coffee. And so the four-wheel drives line up, the, and every one of them has this big contraption on the back of it where you grab a hold of a round bale, pick it up, take it, feed the cows, and drop it. And so it is not uncommon for multiple vehicles to be parked in the street with round bales on the back of them. Uh, it's a small town. There were 18 people in my graduating class. Uh, it's right on the Solomon River. If you know much about hunting, that is the pheasant hunting and muley deer uh, capital of the world right in that area in terms of hunting so it's a great place to travel and to do that and let's just say folks there are country all right I'll never forget Shelby being probably about 12 years old we were home visiting my parents and um, we were at my sister's house which is in the same same town And she looked across the street and she said, Dad, is that a bar over there? And I was like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's where it is. And she said, it's in a double wide trailer. (laughs) I'm just saying you might be a redneck if you're hometown. All right. So let's just say I kind of grew up and a lot of People where I grew up are, are very, they're almost everyone is a farmer, works in the oil field in some capacity. So definitely um, there are a lot of sayings that take place. Um, you know, the sermon title for today is Physician Heal Thyself. It sounds like a quote from Shakespeare. It's actually a quote out of the Bible, a passage that we'll see today. Um, but that was often said in terms of when you were trying to give someone advice about something that very clearly you were at fault with, okay? So, you know, you're trying to give advice to someone. You really shouldn't be doing that, and someone might look at you and say, Physician, heal thyself, okay? So my dad had one uh, that he loved to share, and it was, A lack of planning on your part does not necessarily constitute a crisis on my part, So, you know, there were just lots of these old sayings, you know, you're as lost as a ball on tall grass, you know, just all of those kind of things, which were country sayings. And so every time I go back to my hometown, it's always a a great experience. Uh, I did not realize till I was almost 20 years of age that chicken fried steak was supposed to have gravy on it um, because you just ate it with uh, 
Heinz 57 sauce or something like that. I had no idea that it was supposed to have gravy on it till I moved to Texas. And so a lot of, uh, lot of fun things when you go back to your hometown. The passage today that we're going to look at is in uh, this whole story of Jesus' life. We've been looking in the Gospel of Mark and watching Jesus begin his ministry. And at different points along the ways, the Gospel writers will include stories that are not in the other Gospels. And so uh, Pastor Thurman was going to be gone today. So I thought, let's look at, take a story and look at one of the events that's happening right along the same time as Jesus is preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, actually just days before that, or a week or so before that, he was also teaching or reading scripture in another synagogue. And that synagogue was in his hometown. Now by this point, we know that Jesus has traveled to several areas. He has traveled uh, after leaving the wilderness, after being tempted in the wilderness. He has traveled to Galilee. He has traveled to the same area, Bethsaida, which is around this area of Capernaum. We know that he was in Cana for a wedding with his mother where he did his first miracle. He has traveled to Jerusalem where he caused quite a stir uh, by turning over the tables, the money changer tables, according to John's gospel. John tells us that he was in the Jerusalem area for a little bit. This is where he had his interaction with Nicodemus. We know that after he left there, he, had a, he went down toward the Jordan River, another encounter with John the Baptist. He traveled through Samaria. Uh, where he had the encounter with the Samaritan woman. And now he is actually in his hometown for a short period of time before he's going to travel over to Capernaum. So I want to walk through this passage, and I want you to see some things as we kind of walk on a trip with Jesus as he attends the synagogue where he grew up. Let's just say, uh, in our vernacular, Jesus is going to his home church. And so he goes back on this particular morning, and we're going to look at and we'll understand a little, bet, a little better what synagogue worship looked like, and then we'll draw out some things that happen as Jesus reads Scripture, as he comments on that Scripture, and we'll watch uh, the reaction of his hometown. I'm actually going to start reading in verse 14, so let's start there. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He came to Nazareth when he had been, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written. Now, let's talk a little bit about what typically would happen in this type of a service. Typically, um, when someone was reading Scripture, they would stand uh, to read. Elements of a worship service in the synagogue would usually include uh, the reading of the Shema, um, the prayers. It would include the reading of the law or the Torah that was actually divided into different sections. So throughout a period of time, they would read the entire Torah. Uh, and so you would stop and you would read that section for that particular Saturday. 
there would be a reading of the prophets, which we see Jesus interact with here, where he's asked to give a reading and he stands and they give him the scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, and he turns to this passage that we'll see in a minute. And then there would be some sharing of a benediction and uh, a teaching of instruction from the passages and then a benediction. So notice what Jesus begins to say. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed um, me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to, to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. So the first thing you see here, scene one, is the reading of the Word of God. Jesus comes into this place and he goes to a passage of Scripture. It's this passage that announces that is from the book of Isaiah that God was going to do something great. That even though the nation was going to be taken into captivity, that one day there would be a season, an age, a year of jubilee where God would work and those who were poor would be provided for and those who were oppressed would be set free and those who who were blind would recover sight and those who were being oppressed by others they would no longer experience oppression it's an incredible incredible story for a nation who had lived under that oftentimes it's slavery oftentimes it seemed as if there were so much going on around them that they were almost living as as slaves of oppressors and there were times where the nation of Israel was so blinded by idolatry their hearts were so hard that even God would bring punishment upon the nation so that they would repent and those things would take place But yet there was always this message. There was always a message that somehow in the midst of that there would be a repentance. That somehow, no matter how difficult, that one day there would be redemption. One day there would be proclamation of good news. And one day they would be set free from that blindness. And Jesus reads that passage. And says, this will be the year of Jubilee, the year to proclaim the Lord's favor. And he sets down and he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is about to begin. I mean, that's incredible. And everyone is fixed upon him. So Jesus then begins to reveal the motives of those that are there, and he begins to reveal what God wants to do but may not be able to do in his hometown. Notice the statement in verse 29, and you see the second scene begin. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, think about it. He's the hometown hero. 
This is the man that everyone is talking about in the nation. This is the man that grew up here and they listened at his words and marveled. And in the verses 14 and 15 that we read earlier talked about how all of these things that were beginning to happen in Jesus' ministry are spreading around. And he comes home and it's almost as if he'd been on what we would call the six o'clock news, you know. And he's just, everybody's talking about this boy that grew up in Nazareth, this young man, and he comes to the synagogue and he reads the passage and everyone marvels. But yet, they want something. They want something for themselves. And if he's done that there, then oh boy, he's going to do it here. And Jesus begins to speak of something because this last word, is this not Joseph's son? There's a dig there. Don't worry. There's a dig there. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. And he gives this saying, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. I know what's coming, Jesus said. You're going to look at me and say, Physician, if you can do it everywhere else, then the least you can do is do it in your hometown. Give us a show. Show us your popularity. Show us how famous you are. Show up and do something that we can marvel And Jesus says to them, you want to say, physician, heal yourself. Now for us, we look at that and, we be, and we're like, well, why is that an issue? I mean, if he's doing miracles in these other places, why is that an issue? Why Would it be unreasonable for them to ask God to do something in their life? Would it be unreasonable for them to see the glory and the power of God take place? I mean, after all, it's his hometown. But what we don't hear and we don't understand that Jesus will explain in a minute is that this is a response for a show. Give us a sign. If you're all of that, Jesus, then show us what you got. Give it to us. If you can do all of that in all of those other places, brother, if you're the doctor of marvel, physician, heal yourself. Give us a show. And they demand that God display himself on their time frame, in their manner, in the way that entertains them. And this was not uncommon. Jesus had this happen several other times in his ministry. It even happens on the cross where they say, well, you've done all this for others. Bring yourself down from the cross. But the problem is, if we're only seeking after God for a sign, and he gives us a sign then what keeps me following the next day? Well, God's got to do another sign. 
and the next day, and the next day. And before too long, all of my spiritual life is driven by going from sign to sign to sign. And when God stops showing his signs, then I guess God is done working. And it is a complete misunderstanding that we have regarding the character and the power of God. That God is sovereign, and he doesn't work on our schedule. He works on his schedule. And he works for our good. He works for our maturity. He works for us to be a reflection of his glory, not of our glory. And they want glory for the hometown. They want glory for themselves. Even though they probably have not treated Jesus very well, they want some of that glory for themselves. Show us a sign. And Jesus calls them out. And in fact, not only does he call them out, he begins to explain what he feels like is the motive behind what they say, what they say. So you see this there as this scene continues in verse 24. For truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but to the land of Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. In other words, to a Gentile, a non-Jewish country, to a non-Jewish widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them... And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, this king who lived in Syria, who had come to the south, who displayed himself to be a true worshiper of God. Jesus gives two examples of two prophets who were from Israel in a a time of great difficulty for the nation, that God used but not for the good of the Jewish people because they were under his divine judgment, but for the good of someone who was outside of the nation of Israel. Elijah is a great example as he was this prophet that God had called and the the king Ahab was uh, investing himself in all of the idolatry and the pleasures of the age and of the time. The worship of Baal, the worship of the female goddess Asherah. And the land was full of, of temples to Baal and Asherah poles that were uh, places of worship. And he was... God was giving punishment to the nation of Israel and even had sent him to the king. And he had said, there will be no rain in Israel. And this incredible famine, this incredible drought came. And the king wanted to pursue him and to kill him. And if he would have shown his face anywhere in the nation of Israel, he would have been killed. And God took him out of his home country and put him over in what's now modern-day Jordan by a brook And the passage, if you go over to 1 Kings 17 and read it, is basically shows that he was being fed by the ravens each day. Now, that's hard for us to grasp, but let me put it in your vernacular. This week I was driving and I noticed an abundance of turkey buzzards. You see what they're eating. 
on the side of the road, meat off of various and sundry animals that get killed on the road. And imagine God saying to you, I'm going to hide you in the woods and your meat is going to be brought to you every day by the turkey buzzards. Bon appetit. That's what Elijah heard when God told him, I'm going to feed you by the ravens, okay? You get this? It's a humbling experience for the prophet of God. But because of the hardness of the king, because of the hardness of the people, because of their rejection of God, because they wanted uh, a worship that was sensual, that was on their terms, that wasn't based in the holiness of God, and they felt like, well, we'll just mix it all together. One day I'll worship Baal, one day I'll go to the temple, next day I'll go worship the uh, pagan goddess Asherah, and I'll just mix it all together. And God said, I'm bringing judgment. And the, the prophet couldn't even stay in the country. He had to be fed by the turkey buzzards of his day in another country. And when God did show up to end and begin to work, he didn't feed a widow that was starving in Israel. He fed one that was outside of Israel. And Elisha was the same thing. It's this prophet who should be welcome, but yet there are these, uh, the, the school of the prophets, and they are uh, you know, being hidden, and different things are taking place. And God wants to work through Israel. He wants to work in this nation, but he cannot because of the hardness of their heart. And it took a king from the north, a non-Jewish king, king to see the glory of God and himself to be healed of leprosy. And God showed his power not in Israel but he, to the Israelites, but he showed it to a Syrian king. And even those that were there suffering from leprosy in their own country because of their rejection of the prophet from his home country, or we would say from his hometown, God worked outside of the nation. Okay? Now, I've helped you understand what Jesus is saying to them. It shouldn't be missed by you today. Do you think it was missed by those in his day and time? Absolutely not. They knew exactly. And the third scene begins. And when they heard these things... All the synagogues were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. Oh my, how things have changed. In moments, they have changed. When they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. It's interesting, um, a few years ago when I traveled to Israel, we went to Nazareth. And you get off the bus at a particular place and you, you kind of walk up through these city streets back to an area where a modern day church is built. That is supposed to be the place where the angel appeared to Mary and there are ruins of different houses and of the synagogue and things in that area. And I'll never forget getting off of the bus... And immediately to my right, there was a huge banner that had words written on Arabic 
It had words written in Hebrew. And then there were these very large English words that were written on this banner. And they said these words, Allah has no son. In other words, God has no son. And the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth still exists to this day. As Nazareth said, if you won't give us a sign, if you won't do what we've asked you to do, if you dare challenge the motives behind our spirituality, we will run you out of town and we will take you and we'll give you a chance for you to fly. You'll be free as a bird till you hit the ground. And they rejected God's Son. Now, some of you know the song, The Day the Squirrel Went to Church. If you don't, go home and Google that and watch the video. You'll be quite entertained. This was the day when God came to church. The very God of gods, the very creator of the universe stood in their midst. The very God stood up in their synagogue and took a scroll that he had inspired. He read the words from it. He proclaimed, today I am at work and this will take place. And people rejected him. That's a day. So what are some thoughts that we should take away from this passage because I've stepped back and tried to look at this, this whole aspect and try to understand what it is that Jesus is really doing and what is, the, what is really the understanding of what he was doing and, and what should we take away from this. First thought is the age of Christ, this coming age that Jesus speaks about, means the proclamation of the gospel and the release of the enslaved. And Jesus would spend his life. He would proclaim there would be a nation who had rejected him, but yet God was coming and saying, you have been blind and I want you to see who I am. You have been oppressed and I want to set you free. You have been a people who have been distracted and I want you to come back to the genuineness of the worship of me. And Jesus said that there was an age that was coming, that God still was in the transformation business. And He wanted to transform them and to change them. And where they were blind, they would see. Where they had allowed sin to oppress them, they could be set free from that. And where there was a separation between them and God, there would be a reconciliation. And the good news of Jesus is that He has come, that He died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins and he purchased a place for us and that is the gospel and his death and burial and resurrection we have redemption the forgiveness of sin we have reconciliation we are no longer slaves to that sin but we are free and Jesus is saying to them there is a work of God that's about ready to take place 
And that is our work. We are the proclaimers of the gospel. We are the proclaimers of redemption. We are the ones with a message of reconciliation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Another thought that I think is important when you look at this passage is this. The example of Christ was to invest in the least, the lost, and the rejected. It is very incredible that he quotes this passage in Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry. And then when you watch the rest of these Gospels unfold, whether it is the Gospel of John with the seven miracles and the seven signs and teachings that Jesus gives, whether it is Matthew where he is is revealed as the Son of God and he ministers to the blind, to the lame. He ministered to those who were spiritually blind to him, who were hard of heart. And he challenged them. Oftentimes they were upset at him because he was healing on the Sabbath, because he was doing these things, and their hearts were hard. But yet Jesus doesn't look to invest in those hardened leaders he invests in these least, the lepers, the blind man, the lame. And he pours into them so much to the point that when they want to criticize Jesus, how do they do it? Well, he's with the tax collectors. He's with those people. But yet Jesus invested himself there. Because anyone who would come, whether it was a king of Syria or whether it was a widow on her deathbed about ready to feed her last meal to herself and her son, Jesus' life would intersect with the least and the lost and the rejected of society. And there was freedom and proclamation and salvation for everyone who would believe in him. And I think that is so important for us. Because we, can, we have to be so careful in our day and time. You know, we look around and we you know, are together. You guys are in worship today. We were in community groups and life groups, Sunday school before church started. And we are together in, in community in so many ways. And for whatever reason, God has placed us in this community in this urban center, and around us, sometimes that looks different. But as we do ministry, we have to remember that as we are proclaiming the gospel, there is a proclamation that has to happen to the least and the lost and the rejected. And that as we are growing, that that must be taking place. And I am convinced that we as a church, you know, right now we're working with organizations in our community like the Coalition Against Poverty in Suffolk, the Peninsula Rescue Mission, the Climb Center, which you have been so generous to through the uh, baby bottle campaign with the, um, uh, the Geneva Shelter, with the local food banks, sister churches in our area, and we're all coming together saying, what can we do to impact the lives of the least and the lost and the rejected of our community? Because the gospel is alive and Jesus is alive. Many of you know last year that we, or years before that we've done oftentimes a Thanksgiving type of feast. And this year we're actually working with the, the Coalition Against Poverty and an organization called Willing to Share 
and a and several churches in the area um, that are that are uh, both African American and are Anglo churches in this community. And we are saying on the Saturday before Palm Sunday, we're going to do a banquet for the community at the Salvation Army building. And we're going to ask people to come to that. Every family that comes will get a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every family that comes will get a meal and we'll have a music. We'll proclaim the gospel to, the, to those that come. And then we're going to have a room set up through the generous donation of, of these organizations that provide provides food, it pro- I mean, excuse me, provides clothes, shoes, uh, multiple areas of clothing, provides Bibles, books on Christianity and Christian faith, and we're going to invest and give into this community, and we're not going to stop finding ways that we can invest back into this community and give to this community and watch God work, because I feel, even as this passage, it's on Jesus' heart before he even starts. Let me give you a third thought. Leaders are developed and disciples are made in the process. Because it's interesting that Jesus really developed the disciples into the leaders that they were. He developed these men into this group of of, uh, transformers of the culture, really, as they ministered to the least and lost of these. Jesus is saying... um, Come and see, and they watch, and they see the healing, and they see him working and ministering. Uh, Jesus says, participate in this. Take this bread and give it out. Take this fish and give it out. Help do these things. And they're participating, and they're seeing the work of God. Then Jesus begins to say, okay, now you go. You, you, go, you 70, go out into these villages and engage people with the proclamation of the good news. And he begins to send them out and then they come back and they say, well, this worked and this didn't work. And he's mentoring them. He's talking to them. He's helping them through their misconceptions. And then when Jesus goes back, he continues all that he began to do and teach through the power of the Spirit through those very people, as those disciples then made disciples who made disciples, and that process continued. We as a church have said we're going to be a church that is our disciples making disciples. And a great way for us to do that is through the carrying out of ministry. As we go and take someone with you. You know, I learned to share my faith because a layman who, who was the head of a parts store, who was passionate about his faith, took a young preacher boy and said, what are you doing on Monday nights? I said, well, you know, I've got some business I need to make. Good. You're going with me. And he took me. And this man taught me how to share my faith. I mean, just day after day, visit after visit, and things that we would do. And it was just incredible to watch. And then we'd get in a home and he'd say, I need, to take, I need to make a phone call. You share your testimony with these people. And then he'd say, um, David, why don't you share about what God's doing? You know, and so little by little, he began to just make me share my faith. And then over time, I was able to then take other people and train them and go into ministry and be able to share my faith. But he did it in the process of ministry. Do you see that? We have this idea, we come and take a course, you come for seven weeks, you check off the roll each week, now you're a disciple. 
And I just don't think that happens. We need to put the generations together and share together and do ministry together and allow that process of multiplication to come into our lives as we are serving and impacting. And Jesus said, boys, we're going to the poor. We're going to Samaria. We're going to, uh, to all of these places, and you're going with me. And in that process, he developed them into the leaders of what would become the church that would reach the known world at that time. The fourth thing I want us to see today is God desires to use those who are open to the heart of God. God uses open hearts, open minds, and open scripture. This group in Nazareth, and and it wasn't unique just to them, had closed their hearts They had closed their minds to God. You are required to work within this box. And you can only work within this box. And you are, and if you don't work inside this box, then it must not be of you. And I'm going to tell you, when Jesus came, He broke the box. And He took their interpretations of the law. He took their traditions and He threw them out the window and said, this is truth and truth is found in Me. And He taught truth and he showed this people who had become so closed-hearted what it meant to love. He showed them what it meant to understand the scriptures. He showed them what it meant to not be focused on the things of this world, but to be focused on the things that were eternal. And when we open our hearts to the move and working of God and open our minds to the reading of scripture, and we will read scripture and allow God to teach us, and I I'm so concerned that we are so focused on I have to come to church, have this experience, I have to go to this place, and God, if you don't bless me, then that must not be where I need to be. And we're driven by experience after experience after experience. And God wants to teach us, but He wants to teach us through His Word. He wants to teach us through the proclamation of Scripture. He wants to teach us by taking us through the difficult things of life. Because marriage is not to make you happy, it is to make you holy. So that means God's going to have to rub the two of you together in a way that causes conflict so that you can learn to live at peace with one another. Do you get that? And he's going to bring you into church, and he's going to put you with a group of people that may not always rub you the right way, but guess what? He puts you there to mature you, and this process of suffering and this process of us working and living life together is the process that God uses to make us into what we need to be, to mature us into what we need to be. Because family is fun, is it not? I mean, my go home and my brother and sister, man, they go at it, and I'm just like, they're going to see this on DVD, but anyway. And I'm just like, you know, there are times I'm so glad I live 2,400 miles away, or whatever it is. It's 26 hours to get there, I know that. And, but you know what? We're still family. And, they, God used them, and they're using one another and the experiences of life to make them into what God desires for them to be. And he's going to use all of us working together, in community together, living together to mature us into what we need to be. Because for each person here, the Bible is clear that he's brought you here. 
God knows and promises that every resource that we need for life and godliness we have. That every person he's brought to this congregation for a reason. And you have a spiritual gift. You have a ministry. You have something that God has empowered you with. And he desires for you to be doing that so that this body of Christ would be healthy. It's not if God has something for you to do. He has something for you to do. It's a matter of us being discerning enough to open our hearts, to open our minds, to open Scripture and say, God, where do you want to use me? And even if it's outside of the box, that God could use you in a way that maybe you might not see or you might understand, but it would be a way that would include the proclamation of the gospel. What's our response today? I think it's simple. Believe that Christ has come. Believe in the one in whom he has sent. Act. Act to proclaim the good news. Act to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And be. Be a disciple maker. Join the ministry and let God do his work through you and in the life of someone else. Let's pray. God, we thank you today for the challenge from your word. God, your power was displayed as Jesus merely walked away from this situation because the time for him was not yet. But God, we know that you have brought us to this place because the work of Christ that wasn't finished at this moment in this gospel would be finished and it would be finished on the cross and at the resurrection that Christ would show and prove that he had died for sin, had been buried, and that he rose again and that through him that we have life and that there is liberty and there is freedom when we trust and believe and follow. God, I pray for the courage today of anyone in this room that needs to believe and to follow. I pray you give them that courage. God, to us as a church, you have set us here for such a time as this. I pray, God, that you would put on our hearts, that you would put in front of us the places for ministry, and God, that you would engage us into the lives of other people. God, that your name would be proclaimed, that your name would be made famous in this community. And God, that you would be glorified. God, I thank you for this congregation, the great friends that are here, brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, you've called us to this place. This is our hometown. And God, help us to be a radiant beacon of your light and a great proclaimers of the gospel. For we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need to respond, come and join, come and pray, come and share. I'm here. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. 
I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.